providing tips and guidance to help you grow your business. You're listening to the Advisor to Advisor podcast, advice for advisors from advisors. Welcome to Advisor to Advisor. I'm Scott Hansen. I'm Pat McLean. And this is episode 10 on navigating the M&A and succession planning waters. Well, we've got a great guest for this uh, podcast today. David Grau, Sr., he's the president and founder of FP Transitions. And if you've been in this industry any length of time, um, you've clearly heard of FP Transitions because uh, they've been around for, what, 20 years or so. Oh, 20 plus years, yeah. Yeah, and... Um, he's written have, a couple books, David has. Yeah, Succession Planning for Financial Advisors and Buying, Selling, and Valuing Financial Practices. Um, so he's uh, very well known and quite an expert and helping a lot of people. And recently received the Icons and Innovators Award from Investment News. And so I had an opportunity uh, last couple months. I was in the Portland area and I asked if I could stop by and spend some time with David and his team. And uh, I did so. And I thought this, we've got to have him on as a guest on our podcast. So uh, David, uh, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so you guys just had a visit not long ago. No, not too long ago. Um, and I had read one of his books years and years ago, and then I reread uh, that book and read the second one as well. So uh, good books. Um, but, hey, David, so I before we get into this uh, too deeply, I'm just going to go right to the questions that I'm most curious about because um, <laughs> I hear so many conflicting things about that. So... You obviously put valuations on businesses, or maybe not obviously, but you put valuations on businesses in our industry to sell. How is the market treating RIA business versus commission business, whether it is, you know, whether it's ongoing or not ongoing or single instance commission business versus RIA business in terms of valuations? Negatively, uh, positively, how's that look? Well, so... um yeah, yes, to all the above. Um, our valuation methods, we, we do about a thousand formal valuations wow. a year. In public, yeah, and we've got a whole team here of, of, of credentials and licensed appraisers. But, but, but probably 90% of our work is what we call a market based valuation. So if we get into the appraisals, we get into the, you know, the ivory tower stuff. Um, you know, theoretically, what would a seven and a half percent slice of a C corporation be worth in the event of death or divorce? But but most of our work is in answer to questions: What is my practice worth? I'd like to buy a practice. I'd like to sell my practice. I'd like to merge it. So what we do is we we use a market-based approach. This is this is something very intuitive to everyone who's listening today. A market-based approach looks at the marketplace. And, and we literally have a database of what we call comps. So um, we handle transactions, several hundred a year. So, so we keep a database of, you know, over a thousand current transactions. And, and the answer to your question is, you know, uh, how do we value uh, fee income or recurring income versus commission income? We simply echo what the market yeah. says it's worth. So when we list a practice for sale and, and 50 interested buyers want it, Three of them make it to the finish line. They put in full price offers. Um, what do they offer? How are they valuing recurring income versus non-recurring? What are the terms of the deal that they're offering? 
what are the tax structures they're offering. We have access to all that information. So we simply echo what we see buyers and sellers doing in an arm's length transaction. So with that, short, what, have you, revenue is more valuable. what have you seen the last few years as far as what's, what's changing? Because it seems like the, the M&A space is pretty hot right now. There's about 50, <laughs> 50 buyers yeah. for every one seller or something like that. But you know, what, what's your view of the market right now and how's that changed over the last few years? So uh, a couple of things have changed. One, we certainly have watched the industry move more towards fee-based operations, which is good because that's what buyers really covet. We've also watched um, sellers start to build businesses. Uh, we use that word very differently than practices. So businesses are investable models that people from the inside or outside would, would want to be a part of. Bank financing is another big change. For the first 15 years of our 20-year life as a business, everything was seller-financed. In the last five years, SBA and more recently conventional bank financing enable a, a relatively small buyer with big aspirations to take on a, a fairly sizable um, acquisition. They, they can go and get a government-backed loan you know, for 3 or 4 or $5 million and be a participant in this marketplace. That's changed everything. Wow. And can they do that without a personal guarantee, or is they all, they all require personal guarantees? Yeah, it, it, it depends. The, the good news is we work with a real small group of what we would consider expert banks. A lot of local banks just don't understand our industry, and that probably won't surprise either of you. But the local banks don't really appreciate the, you know, the highly regulated structure, which I think is actually an advantage if you're a lender. They don't appreciate or understand recurring revenue, the low overhead, the fast growth rates. So, so the, you know, the bottom line is that um, most of the banks will lend to the business. And, and it's not just the acquiring business, it's the selling business added together. In many cases, that's enough to carry the loan. Sometimes, depending on the strength of the buyer and the deal, buyer, you know, the, the buyer's significant ownership will have to guarantee it. But usually it's, that's the end of it. It's not hard collateral like a house. So the, the government helps with their guarantee. It, it softens the need for a, a personal guarantee. And have we, have we seen an increase in those quite a bit the last couple of years? Are they still a small percentage of the deals? Or No, it's growing rapidly. Uh, we participate in, in two or three of those a week at this wow. point. Wow. And those are yeah. internal succession normally? No, it, it's actually both. Um, certainly... Uh, yeah, I appreciate that question because when it first started about five years ago, all of the emphasis by the lenders and the bankers out there was on mergers and acquisitions. We found that on an internal succession, uh, that, you know, we, we typically take a, a group through about three tranches. And, and the first tranche, we, we go from 100% founder to maybe 80-20 and then maybe to 50-50. The last buyout is very often accelerated with the use of bank financing. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And who are the who are the who are the buyers, the sellers, the private equities, uh, groups coming together, selling parts of themselves, the other parts, just trying to level up. So one firm maybe manages three hundred million and another manages a hundred million, they want fifty fifty. Are you seeing those sort of things? Are you seeing private equity? What what does the deal flow look like? And how much are pure RIA and how much of them are RIA broker dealer affiliates? So we'll work with upwards of 2,000 clients a year. 70% of our clients are registered reps or hybrid models. 
about 30% are pure fee-only RIAs. When it's time to find a buyer, um, typically sellers look for someone who has a, uh, an almost identical regulatory structure, but who's bigger, better, faster in every other way. Um, younger in terms of ownership, but the buyer tends to be two or three times the size of the seller, but, but not a hundred times as big. We don't see a lot of banks making it to the finish line. We don't see a lot of private equity. I, I know that stuff's all happening, but most of the sellers that we work with tend to want to find buyers who are just like they are as people, just bigger and stronger. So they can take on the relationships. And what's the what's the typical size deal look like? I mean, we read about in investment news or RA Biz or something about the the big ones, but there's a good bunch of little ones that we never seem to make the news. Yeah, you know, and, I, and it's interesting because I think that's probably where the, the certainly there's a lot of quantity in the smaller transactions. Oh, yeah. we, we don't we tend to stay out of the the book operations. I mean, well. The smallest we would ever list is probably $150,000, $200,000 in value. Most of ours are somewhere between probably 750000 in value and probably $5 million. Um, there's plenty of them in that space, and, and they all, they're almost all single-owner models who need – they don't have an internal successor, so they need an external um, merger or acquisition partner. What about the – I mean, I've talked to enough advisors, <laughs> been in this a long time – uh, I've had a number of conversations with seems like advisors maybe in their 60s, 70s, that they kind of like the idea of monetizing their business, but yeah. when kind of push comes to shove, they kind of like you know I just retire I, in place. Yeah, retire in place. I mean, their clients yep. don't really realize it, but their yeah, clients don't, don't want to really don't want anyone new. Why don't I just float away most of the time and make myself available by phone? Yeah, and, that, and that's exactly what they do. So, so here's some statistics that will uh, uh, bear that up. So over 20 years of our, our being in this industry and, and working with and creating and overseeing an open marketplace, we've, we've come to the conclusion that, at least to date, it's about one out of ten advisors who sell and walk away. And, and less than one out of ten build multi-donor, multi-generational business and stay as long as they can work. Well, that leaves over 80% who take the attrition route and do exactly what you said. They just keep working, enjoying it, winding it down slowly. Um, as clients get older or, or find their way to other places, that's fine. They just let them go. And, and they don't ever sell or monetize the value. They just enjoy what they do. And, and so, David, I can't remember if, uh, uh, if you, in your books, you had a word for it. And you may have actually coined the word retire in place. Um <laughs> <laughs> and I, he may have. We call, we call it. We call it attrition. Oh, got it. Yeah, got I wrote it. that down. <laughs> so what? So what happens to the equity value in their business? Essentially, they just forgo that. Is that what happens? Uh, it just goes to nothing, or? Yeah, and, and, and remember, um, for, for most of the of this earlier generations of book builders, they never really got into this to build a, a multi-owner, multi-generational business with fifteen support staff. Like, like what you folks have built. I mean, they, that's just the, why wasn't their goal. They wanted to make a good living. They wanted to play a central role in their clients' lives. And they wanted to, you know, be the center, the epicenter of that little practice model. And, and they are. And they love it. And they make a really good living. But they don't ever have it valued. They don't think of it as 
like a, you know, like a house has value, they don't think of it that way. It's, it's cash flow. So they enjoy the cash flow as long as they choose to do it. And then at the end, it's just kind of handed to someone or they pass away or they become too infirm to work. And it yeah, what gets, happens when what, someone what, dies? What, you know, the, what, that person dies. Yeah, does it just get kind of shuttled off? Or you must I know. have seen enough of these. All of the above. Um, typically what happens is if there's no continuity or succession or exit plan in place, the clients go find their way to another advisor on their own. Got it. Actually, I know I know clients that are in their late 70s that are now doing uh, succession planning with the help of your firm. And thank you, David, for helping these people uh, do it probably 15 years too late. Um, not your fault, theirs. <laughs> I actually kind of view it as a bit of a conflict of interest uh, that maybe even should be disclosed to a client at this point, because when somebody is at the point where they're, no, they're not engaged like they were at another point in their life, I mean, I certainly see advisors, know some advisors that they bear, the only work they do is to keep the clients on the books, essentially. Uh, they're not really engaged in what's ha- happening in the future. They're not being proactive. And uh, the reason they're still doing this for their own benefit, not necessarily for their clients. And oftentimes their clients would be better served in a different model going forward, but they don't make that available to the client, nor do they disclose to the potential conflict of interest, the real conflict of interest that exists. And and in both of my books, I gently admonished the independent side of the industry and and just simply made the point that, you know, if if you work over on on the wirehouse side, and something happens, you die, you retire, you just call it quits one day. You're surrounded by people who can step in and take over. And they will, the quickly. Side. Yeah, and they will. Yeah, they're still like swarming within, now. Like within minutes. Yeah, there's just nobody there. On the independent side. Uh, on the independent side, side it's, it's your duty as the book or practice owner to make that next plan and take those steps on behalf of your client base. And if, if you don't, I, I don't think you're fulfilling your duties as an independent owner. I and I think, I think it's actually a step further. I think it's not only that succession plan, but it, are you really providing the level of service that the clients deserve uh, if you're so, so-and-so retiring in place? So, David, when we talk about succession plans, how many of those actually, you know, we're obviously a buyer in the space of businesses. And it's funny, you know, we see these deals that you talked about between 750 and 5 million. We're involved in lots of those and uh, we're involved in some really big ones as well. But the, but the, you know, if you look at the numbers um, it's almost like a barbell effect. There's the really big ones. And then there's the ones less than, you know, $5 million. Um, of those people that go through the succession planning and, and name a successor um, in their plan, how many of those actually come to fruition or have you seen it yet? So I know you do a lot of succession planning that says, you know, when the day that Bill decides to leave or drops dead, then this is going to go to Jerry, the 31-year-old advisor, and this is what it's going to be priced at, and this is the formula. Have you seen those take place? Yes, Daily. And and tell me, do they work well? Do they did, are they good for the families? Are they good for the clients? Well, uh, yes, but but let's let's put it in full context. When we lay out a succession plan, which we define as a gradual incremental transition of ownership and leadership from one generation to the next, usually over twenty years, that, that's a long time to work with a partner and to build something. 
So how many of those work? Well, you can probably tell from your own life, there's a lot of failed partnerships out there. What, what, what you folks have built is fairly rare. But oh, it's failed. About... I just uh, keep sticking around. <laughs> just... All evidence to the contrary. Wouldn't that be funny if, it, if, if that was the statement, David, that caused the dissolution of our uh, partnership was you on a podcast. The final straw. <laughs> that was it. You know that David had something going for him, Scott. He's right. Okay, back to but you, that's, David. That's a lot of power just for the phone line. So, so what we do is, is we set up the succession plan, and, we, and, and our, our advice is, Always start internal. Try to build a foundation so that it can take care of you, protect you, allow you to slowly retire on the job, and have as your backup plan an external sale. So the plan is actually both. In, in practice, over, over the last like 10 to 12 years, it seems like about one out of every three clients that say, I want to go the duration with a succession plan and sell internally, I want my next generation successor team to build on top of what I started and to gradually buy me out and take it over. About one out of three times, that'll make the full distance and, and counting. About one out of three times, it doesn't work. The, the, the partnerships just don't last. They start too late. Um, the business isn't growing or they, it's just a variety of reasons. And the other third are accelerated. And, and they, they just they, they go to a bank and G2, G3, or next generation buyers cash out and take over sooner than anticipated. But it still goes internal. The ones that fail go external, and, they, and we sell them. And we've got, got it. Um, we, we, we got a lot of you know stuff in the four to eight million dollar range that are actually good sized businesses that tried to do the succession plan, that gave it a valiant effort. But in the end run, it takes a long time. It really does take 10 to 20 years to make them work really well. And if you start 10 years late, you kind of run out of time. And, what, and I, you know, when you mentioned the bank financing, it, it probably helped the number of internal succession plans that actually take place now. Right. Oh, it's been a godsend. It has. It sure has. Because because in in previous years, ten years ago, the seller would normally be seller the one financed. that financed it, and the risk never left him or her. Right. One of the things we often say with a smile on our face is when, it, when it's time for Generation 1 to retire, who in their right mind would loan a group of 35-year-old <laughs> next-generation buyers $5 million to buy out the owner? Co the answer is the federal government. Oh, got it, got it. Yeah, because the, because the, owner, the owner wants to mitigate risk and wants yeah. to leave the business, and if the owner is carrying the financing, the seller is carrying the financing, the risk is never mitigated. In fact, it's increased because the likelihood that you're going to have to step back into the business and take it over and rebuild was yeah. high, was was really high. So it left very few uh, available buyers up until recently where now all of a sudden you've got private equity in there, you've got bank finance. You have people like my like ourselves who took private equity, we're an enterprise. We took private equity about a year and uh, I don't know, 15 months ago. And we're out there acquiring firms, some for cash, some for stock, some for a combination of the two. And we're putting it together, but we can take risk off people's plate. Right. And that's really what the business owners are looking for. Unless there are eight out of 10 that want to, what do you call it? Um, attrition in place. And I called it retire in place. Attrition route. Well, as I said, you know, the, the bank financing has really been a, just a, a game changer for us. 
but, but also what makes the bank financing work on the internal sales is that from a client's perspective of that advisor, they, they got to know the, the employees as principals before they bought out the founder. So, so these are the people who bring coffee into the room. They're not the people who do the you know, back office work. They were yeah. sitting there right at the elbow of the senior advisor and gradually taking it over. They didn't just think like owners. They were owners. They'd made the investment. And, and, and that's a big deal, too. So it's important to at least start the internal route. Once you've got it started, you can still sell outside, or you can accelerate what? with bank financing, or you can take it the distance. That's a good set of options. All right, and David, before we go, give us your view of what the uh, the landscape looks like in the investment community uh, for people like myself and smaller firms 10 years from now. Is it going to be dominated by big regional firms like Financial Engines or um, or we would hope Handsome McLean or someone like Wealth Enhancement Group or Edelman & Company or any of those, or is it going to be regional or a bunch of small players? What's it, what, what, in your view, what's it going to look like in 10 years? Well, having been one myself, I never underestimate the sole proprietor. They're nimble. They're adaptable. They know when to duck. And even if they get knocked down, they scramble right back up. So I, I think that small book owner model will always be with us. My hope is that instead of occupying three-quarters of the industry space, that businesses with multiple owners and, and multiple generations of ownership that have strong platforms that can recruit and train and mentor. I mean, our, our goal as a business is, is to double the number of multiple owner, multiple generation businesses, sustainable businesses. If we can do that, that's the group that will turn the tide on this industry and take independent ownership to a level it's never been before. I don't think it's consolidation. I think it's strengthening and sustainability. Well, you know, it's funny, David. So I've been in this business 25 years. And being independent, we used to, we, I mean, the wirehouses used to kind of joke about us, like little stepchildren or something, and, and yeah. kind of <laughs> scoff at us and, and uh, belittle us and that sort of thing. And that tide has already turned quite a bit. Where a lot of people at the wirehouse look, look at the advisory space and think, wow, there's a lot of benefits there, not only for as a financial advisor, but clearly for clients. Um, and the clients, I think, are still, the retail public is still warming up and getting used to this idea of independence. They well, still don't quite see well, well, the benefits, but well, it's moving that way. What we do know is that they, they, they have moved more to a Schwab and Fidelity platform for many on the retail side, and that's not far from where we're at. That's right. So, hey, David. One last point I'd, yes. I'd make I, in terms of where we're going. You know, with, with more of the industry shifting to an advice-based format, more of it to fees, what, what people are finding every, every time we do evaluation, that we're reaffirming that this small practice that they own is, is the most valuable asset in their life. And, and after a bit, they learn to take care of it and to nurture it to make sure that it doesn't die out. Once you get a formal valuation in the hands of an advisor, it's a different world. And, and they look at what they've done differently. That's, I, I think, the key. That's a powerful that's thing. Why we've done, yeah, we've done, we've done 10,000 valuations. That's still just a scratch on the surface. But little by little, the independent advisors are learning that what they do, it's, it's more than just a, a lifestyle. It's more than a good, feel-good job. This is a really important contribution, and it's very, very valuable. 
hence 50 to 1 buyers to sellers. No kidding. Yeah. So this has been David Grau with FP Transitions. And um, I'll tell you, I've spent some time with David personally. Uh, I've read his books. Uh, he's helped our firm. Um, I can't say enough good things about uh, him and what he does and his team up uh, in that beautiful Portland suburb. Um, we will, you'll be able to find his uh, contact right information our... on our website. So yeah. David, thank you for thank joining you. us. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on advisor to advisor. Uh, encourage you to visit our website, advisor to advisor.com where there's a plethora of great information and other podcasts, uh, to help you with your business. The contents of this podcast are exclusively intended for financial professionals. 